Ephesians chapter 2. Turn there if you're not already there. John Hansen taught us last week from verses 1 through 10 and kicked off with this call, as we will also kick off this morning, with a, a call to remembrance, a call to remember. And I think he shared uh, a quote from John was like, Chris, I always mix up the, the, the Christian singers. Is it Chris Tomlin or one of the other ones? The, the uh, remember your chains and remember that they are gone. Stephen Curtis Chapman, thank you. Yeah. Um, and so we'll do a little bit more of that this morning. It's an important part of the Christian's life to remember where we've come from, and we'll discuss a little bit as to why. But last week, John showed us that in verse 1, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And there's a call to remember that we were dead. And the reason that we were dead and the thing that we're supposed to remember, according to Paul here, is that we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. That because of the deeds of the body, the deeds of the flesh, the deeds of sin, we were dead. And Paul is calling us to remember, essentially remember what you have done. Remember why you are rightly condemned before God. Remember the sin that has laid you low, and the purpose of that is not just to wallow in self-pity, but to rejoice in that Christ has set you free, and Christ is our Redeemer. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So dead in trespasses, yes, but in Christ made alive. And this morning, Paul continues this theme, this idea of remembering, this call to remembrance. Excuse my mic here. Um, but he turns our attention to sort of a different facet of our depravity. If last week we were to focus and consider how we were dead according to our deeds, this week I'd like us to consider how we were dead according to the flesh, according to our identity, Verse 11 says, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the circumcision by, by what is called the circumcision, which is made again in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Here is not made mention of deeds, but of identity, of who we are, at least the majority of us, as Gentiles. And it's a difficult thing, I suppose, for us in here in 2022 to consider the chasm that existed between Jews and Gentiles. As I was reading through this, in fact, I must I confess I preached something similar to this uh, at the gospel mission a couple months ago, and I took a, a, a different direction. And in reading through this and studying again, I'm thinking, I'm looking at it and said, actually, the dividing wall of hostility that we will get into later is, yes, a dividing wall between God and man, but really what Paul is getting at here is that there is a dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. I don't really experience that. Um, I think we're far enough beyond Calvary and the work of Christ has so permeated our culture, uh, even, even here and now, 
that we are distant from that cultural divide that existed between Jews and Gentiles. I think there are even some here today who have a Jewish background, but for the majority of us, we are Gentiles, which just means we're not Jews, right? The, the, the word, the, the sort of history of the word is uh, goy, which means nation, and goyim is nations, and hagoyim is the nations, and that was the word that was used by the Jews to describe people who just were not Jewish, Hagoim, and that's translated as Gentile for us today. So that's essentially who we are. Marla, you might have a little pass on this one, but for the most part, I think we're Gentiles here this morning, at least in terms of our genetics. Um, we are Gentiles. We are not Hebrews. And Paul says, and he puts a finger on this chasm that exists between Jew and Gentile, that there, there was animosity between these two groups. Jews would not go into a Gentile's house, typically, would avoid talking to them. And as time went on, that, uh, those different cultural differences and allegiances kind of calcified and created a lot of racism and animosity between these two groups. He calls us to remember that. Remember, therefore, that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, and he says this in the flesh a couple times, signifying that he's, he's talking about not the kind of spiritual circumcision that Christ, takes, that Christ performs in our hearts, but the actual uh, sort of genetic belonging to the people of, of Israel. Therefore, at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, sort of as like a derogatory term, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He hits on five specific areas in which we are separated as Gentiles from the covenant promises of God in Israel. He says that we are separated from Christ. And the idea, I think here, is Christ as a Savior, that the Gentiles had no promised Messiah. The promised Messiah was specifically for the Jews. God, Yahweh, promised that he would send a Savior to redeem his people Israel. The Gentiles were excluded from that promise. So they're living in a world full of sin and trouble and turmoil and hardship, and they have no real expectation of anyone coming to rescue them out of that because they are separated from Christ. They have no promise of a Savior. He says also that they're alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Israel was a people that God had established. He'd given them laws. He'd given them promises. He told them how to operate, and they, he had made them a great nation. But, but Gentiles were excluded from this. They were not part of God's chosen people. And so Paul describes them as being alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. He says that they are strangers to the covenants of promise. So God, for his special people, Israel, gave all kinds of promises. You do this, you do this, and this will happen. You behave this way, you follow these laws, this will happen. I will bless you as you obey. And throughout the Old Testament, as commandments are given, whether it was by Moses or, or uh, the judges or whomever, uh, it was always laid out, like, if you follow these things, you will live, and if you do not follow these things, you will die, or you'll be cursed. But the Gentiles didn't have access to those promises 
because they were for the covenant people of God, Israel. So they were strangers to the covenants of promise. They were not recipients of God's covenant love in that way. He also describes them as hopeless. Strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope. You know what the difference categorically in Shakespeare's plays, if it was a comedy or a, or a tragedy? Comedies ended in a, fun- in, a, in, a, in a wedding and tragedies ended in a funeral. Guess what each of us are living? We will all have a, our, our end will be a funeral. Life is tragic. It's, it's, it's trouble followed by trouble and every day you wake up and you don't know what horrible phone call you're going to get or what... Uh, what tomorrow holds, and you can be overcome by, those, by the fears of tomorrow and by the difficulties of your day, especially if you're without God, if you're hopeless, right? There's this rule of three in survival where you, you can survive three weeks without food, and you can survive three days without water, and you can survive three hours without shelter in a, in a harsh environment, and uh, you can survive three minutes without air, and I've heard it say you can survive three seconds without hope. Um, hopelessness is, is uh, the source of so much suffering and pain in the world. Suffering uh, that, that causes lives to be almost not worth living. A hopeless life is a very difficult life. Hopelessness causes relational distress. Hopelessness causes addictions and chemical abuses in people causes emotional and mental well-being problems, mental illness. If you're living a life of hopelessness, it can cause physical damage over the course of time. And hopelessness can also cause uh, international turmoil as well. As people maybe in financial struggles, uh, riots and uh, bread lines and all kinds of trouble that causes people to plunge in, into hopelessness. And, and Paul is describing Gentiles here as being a hopeless people. And lastly, he says, without God in the world. Surely Gentiles had all kinds of gods, right? There were many gods that they worshipped in many different ways, but they did not have access to the one true God, the God who actually is, though they had many others. So Paul describes them as being without hope, no hope, and without God in the world. Now the Jews, by contrast, had all kinds of hope, reasons to be hopeful, reasons to be blessed. They were not strangers of the covenants of promise. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8 says, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people, he's chosen them, to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the least and fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 8, See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes, when the, uh, 
non-Israelites hear these statutes, when the, statutes, when the uh, Gentiles hear this, they will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that, God, that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us, is to Israel, whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? And then Paul in Romans in the New Testament picks up on this same theme as he's talking about Jews. He says in 9, 4 through 5, they are Israelites, and to them, to the Israelites, belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So there is a great distinction between Jew and and Gentile. And I think it was, it was probably much more uh, palpable back in Paul's day, in the days of Christ, but it, I think we do well to remember that it is, that it is true, that Jews have this special uh, place before God. They were the recipients of the promises. They have God dwelling with them, and Gentiles do not. And Paul's calling upon his readers to remember this, to, yes, remember your sin in verses 1 through 3, as we talked about last week, but also to remember who you are in the flesh, that in the flesh you are alien, you're not part of God's family, you are not part of God's chosen people, and he essentially owes you nothing. Louis uh, Sperry Schaefer commented on this passage in this way. I thought it was helpful, so I'll read it for you. It says, The problem of human depravity and failure is never solved by any plan or process which makes light of sin or which underestimates the lost estate of man. So the answer is not to ignore the problem, but as Paul says here, to remember. He says, it is rather solved by the discovery of the marvels of divine grace in Christ Jesus by whom every need of a lost soul is perfectly met. There is slight need for a Savior if we are not wholly lost apart from him. On the other hand, having acknowledged the hopeless condition in which grace found us, having remembered, there is occasion for unceasing thanksgiving to him who saves to the uttermost. Remembering who we are, not only what we've done, but who we are as separated from God, helps us also, and we'll see, to remember what Christ has done for us. And we, when we see what Christ has done, we get a better picture of who Christ is. When I want to know about who someone is, I look at what they have done. What is their life full of? What have they accomplished? What acts have they performed? That tells you something of who someone is. And when we see who we were prior to knowing Christ, then we recognize what Christ has done to bring us to where we are. We see Christ for more of who, we, who he is and as I prayed earlier, uh, as John Newton said, uh, when I see thee as thou art, I'll praise thee as I ought. And that is part of our goal this morning is to relish what Christ has done for us so that we would worship him rightly. Continuing on in Ephesians 2, verse 13, I'll pick up, says, but now, so before, he says, therefore remember, 
And then in verse 33, he's contrasting. It says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Amen. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. But now, this dividing wall of hostility is broken down in his flesh, verse 14. This dividing wall of hostility reminded me of uh, the Berlin Wall, which, uh, Bill, you can bring up our first slide there. The Berlin Wall, I remember growing up having uh, on our, like by our TV, there's sort of a, a shelf of different tchotchke stuff. And uh, one of them was this just chunk of concrete and it had some, some spray paint on it. And I remember hearing that this was a part of the Berlin Wall. And we had a, we had a neighbor across the street uh, who were Germans and I, I think that it came from them as a gift but we had this chunk of a wall. And I remember learning about somewhere in the world as a young kid that there was this wall that got torn down and that's kind of all I knew about it. But essentially what happened is post-World War II, uh, in 1961, Berlin was divided in half. After World War II ended and the Nazis had been overthrown, um, the, the Britain and the United States and France and the Soviets had kind of carved up Germany as they, they were part of the allied forces that overthrew the Nazis. And afterwards, they kind of carved up different parts of, of Germany, and the Soviets were kind of on, on one side, while the French and, and the United States and Britain were more or less on the other, and they had a different way of functioning, a different way of operating. And so uh, on the Soviet side, obviously there was more of a, a communistic bent, and uh, so they're trying to decide as, as these nations, now what do we do, right? We've got all of us involved here, but we don't all know how to run this thing the same way. And so Berlin was divided in half. And what happened was a lot of the people from Berlin, the working force, decided that it was better on the west side of Berlin than living under the communist uh, Soviet regime. And so people started leaving and they left in droves. So the, the Soviet response was to build a wall to prevent people from escaping to the west. And so in 1961, this wall starts going up. It was a 12-foot-high concrete wall. This is not the best picture of it, but you can kind of see. And there's a swath of space, like 100 yards between the wall and this, ne this next fence, which was called the, the dead zone. And in this zone, there were spiked strips and guard dogs and landmines and 300-plus towers, uh, bunkers, 12,000 soldiers were supposed to uh, patrol this strip, and the, the, the command was, if anyone enters into this dead zone space, you kill them immediately. And some 138 died as a result of trying to cross, but others did succeed by swimming channels or flying hot air balloons over. Um, yeah, I thought that one was interesting. Um, but there's this significant wall of hostility that was built up between eastern and western Berlin. 
a wall of hostility. And one of many is just an example in human history, but human history is, is strewn with examples of hostile walls, of borders and boundaries between man and man. And thank God, Christ, it says here in verse 14, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. There was also a dividing wall of hostility for the people of Israel that separated the Jews and the Gentiles. If you want to bring up the next slide for me, Bill, please. And this was in the temple. This is not a super great picture, and I apologize for those listening online that it is not available. Um, but this is a picture of the second temple, uh, the, the rebuilding of, of the temple after its first destruction. And it was expanded upon and renovated by Herod. And what was added, which as far as I, my research could tell me, was not part of the first, the first temple, was this little fence that's around the central building here. It's about five feet tall. You can see a line. It's marked D. I don't know if you can read it back there, but it surrounds the inner edifice of the temple. And that separated what was called the court of the Gentiles from the temple. And if you were a Gentile, you were not allowed into uh, the temple beyond that point. And there were signs that were posted periodically, and we have some of these uh, in various uh, museums today. And the sign was in red paint, and it read like this. It said, no stranger is to enter within the balustrade. The balustrade was this, this fenced area. No stranger is to enter within the balustrade round the temple and enclosure. Whoever is caught will be himself responsible for his ensuing death. So it was punishable on pain of death as a, as a foreigner, as a, uh, as a Gentile, to enter into the temple beyond this uh, beyond this fence, beyond this section. And in fact, Paul in Acts 21, uh, he's arrested, and that, that one of the accusations that's brought against him is that he allegedly took Trophimus the Ephesian into the temple, which as far as scripture is concerned, it did not happen, but that was the excuse that they used to arrest Paul in Acts 21. So it's a serious offense. And I've got to believe that that's exactly the, the, the wall or the, the dividing wall of hostility that Paul is referring to here. There's a physical barrier between the Gentiles and the Jews, and by extension, God himself. I was curious where, where this idea came from, right? I, I did not see this in the, in the instructions, the very explicit instructions that uh, Solomon was given for building the first temple, and yet... Here it, here it is. And one idea that I'd like to propose um, comes from, let's see, where am I at? Nehemiah. So in Nehemiah chapter 13, I'm going to turn there. Uh, we, so Nehemiah, the, the law is being read, and the people are reforming based on things that they have read in the law. If you want to turn there, with me, I welcome you to do that, especially since I did not put a bookmark in. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah is reading from Deuteronomy. And I wonder if this isn't where this dividing wall of hostility has its roots. Nehemiah chapter 13, this is the first couple verses. It says, On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite 
should ever enter the assembly of God. No Ammonite, no Moabite. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. In verse 3, as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all of those of foreign descent. Verse 1 says to separate the Ammonite and the Moabite. Verse 3 says the people separated all of those of foreign descent. And this reading in, in Nehemiah comes from Deuteronomy. If you want to flip back and follow me to Deuteronomy chapter 23, this is where this is quoted from. And I think by reading this, it even expands further the possible overreach of Nehemiah. Deuteronomy 23, 3 through 8 says, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Peor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you. This should all sound very familiar. Because the Lord your God loved you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all of your days forever. But reading on, you shall not abhor the Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian, because you were a sojourner in his land. Children born to them in the third generation may enter the assembly of the Lord. So I, I don't know for sure, but I wonder if this isn't where part of this dividing wall of hostility came from, from this misinterpretation, misapplication of Scripture. And unfortunately, history is rife with examples of people misusing Scripture to mistreat people. Man is prone against man, and Satan has a doctrine for every one of your fallen preferences and ideals. And we need to be very careful as we read Scripture and learn Scripture that we learn it rightly so that we not fall into that. America suffered uh, this same problem uh, when it came to African slavery. There is something called the curse of Ham that was uh, used to defend the subjugation of Africans into slavery. Uh, Ham in, in uh, Genesis after, after um, Noah lands the ark on, on, on the land, it dries out, he plants a vineyard, and as you'll remember, he makes wine and he gets drunk. One of the first things he does after God cleanses the world. Fabulous. Um, and it says he's, like, he's passed out naked, and Ham wanders in and finds his father passed out drunk naked, and he goes and he calls his two other brothers and says, hey, come check this out. And the other brothers are more respectful than him, and they walk in backwards with a cloth and they lay it over, over their father. But because of that, uh, Noah places a curse upon Ham's son, Canaan. And from there, we've decided, or they used to decide, some people, uh, that that the nation of Africa descended from Ham, and therefore they were due perpetual slavery because it's part of God's plan 
and curse that he placed upon Noah's son. And this sounds ridiculous because we have no evidence that Africa was populated by the Canaanites or anything like that. In fact, the curse was not on him. It was on Cain and his son. And yet it was used to propagate the lie that Africans were deserving of slavery and used to uh, grant permission to go across the sea to Sierra Leone or wherever else and to pick up African people and enslave them back to the United States. So much so that the fourth president of the Southern Baptist Convention, who held chair from uh, 1863 to 1887, Patrick Mell said this, from Ham, this this is a Christian president of a seminary, from Ham were descended the nations that occupied the land of Canaan and those that now constitute the African or Negro race. Their inheritance, according to prophecy, has been and will continue to be slavery. So long as we have the Bible, we expect to maintain it. Horrible. And he's not alone. Um, this curse of Ham, as along with manifest destiny and other quasi-biblical doctrines were used to uh, enslave Africans, just as potentially this dividing wall of hostility was set up in God's temple, which was supposed to be a meeting place of the nations to come and worship and pray to him, and yet this dividing wall of hostility comes out, comes up. So back in Ephesians 2, Paul, thank goodness, has said Christ has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So what has happened here? We see that the distant are brought near in verse 13. Remember, he's saying at one time you were far off, you were distant, but in in verse 13, but now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The distant have been brought near. In verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Tribal hostilities have been removed in Christ. Verse 16, uh, making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Men are not only reconciled to one another in this breaking down of the dividing wall of hostility, but we are also reconciled to God. I, I think a good parallel of this dividing wall of hostility is the, uh, the veil or the curtain that was in the temple. And when Christ was crucified, it says the veil was torn from top to bottom. This was the, the curtain that stood between the holy place and the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And so by tearing this curtain physically, it's a picture of the access that all people now have to God through the fl- through Christ's flesh, through his resurrection. Men are reconciled, yes, to one another in Christ, but we are also reconciled to God, as we see in verse 16 here. Peace is also preached to both Jew and to Gentile. Verse 17, and he came, he being Christ, and preached peace to you who were far off, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, Jews. Peace is preached to both Jew and Gentile, And then finally in verse 18, we have a unified access to the Father. For through him, we both, that's Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. We have political differences with 
China. We have political differences with, with Russia and Iran and, and many countries. Um, but suppose you had a Christian brother here this morning. Wouldn't we share a Christian bond with them or a Russian brother, a Russian Christian? We would share a bond for whatever political differences there may be. We have brothers and sisters in Iran and we love those people because our connection to them in Christ supersedes the more superficial connection that we might have to them in the flesh, politically speaking. And Christ has broken down these barriers. He has done it in the flesh. Just a page or two back in Galatians chapter 3, it's put this way, verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So those promises that we are alien to as Gentiles in Christ we have, verse 29, again, Galatians 3, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Those are the Jewish people. Heirs according to promise. The promises are reinstated for us in Christ. So how is this done? How is it that he starts out saying, remember, you're, you're alienated from Israel. You're not part of God's people. And then he's saying, but you are God's people. You do have access to these promises you are not without hope. You're loved of God. How is that? How does this happen? Verse 13 says, happens by his blood. And if you're following along in your notes, blood is the empty space there in our next section here. Verse 13, but now in Christ, you who are once far off have been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ. And in verse 14, it says, he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, so again, what you've done and also your identity, deeds and identity, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He's broken it down in his flesh. He's abolished the ceremonial old covenant law. Verse 15, he's abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now this is not the moral law, right? Christ did not come, he set himself to to uh, abolish the law, but to fulfill it. But here we have the abolishment of, of ceremonial laws, of the holidays and things that you can't eat, uh, specific ways to worship him, things that we would call the ceremonial law. Christ has abolished that in his flesh, in his work on the cross. You think about what we say when we, um, when we take communion, right? When we take the cup, this is the blood of new, of, of new. This is the new covenant in my blood. He's done it by his blood. Jesus kills the hostility in his own death on the cross. In verse sixteen, says he might reconcile us both to God in one body. How through the cross, 
thereby killing the hostility. Christ came to preach peace. It's another way of how he accomplishes all of this is simply by coming. If Christ did not come, then we would be everything that the first two verses of this section explain. But Christ did come, and he came and he preached peace to us. And then in verse 18 it says, For through him we have access in one spirit to the Father. So all of these things Christ accomplishes for us in the gospel. All of these things Christ accomplishes for us in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. And there are, there are many today who would want to take the blood out of the gospel, take the cross out of the gospel, take the violence out of the gospel. We don't need to be worshiping some crucified Savior. But if you take, the, you take the blood out of the gospel, you empty the cross of its power. And I think that's very evident here, right? It's through his blood. It's through his flesh. It's through his death that he has abolished this dividing wall of hostility. If you do not have a crucified Savior, if you do not have a crushed Jesus, you have a wall of hostility and you're still in your sins. But thank God he did shed his blood. We sang earlier, right? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We need to retain our bloody gospel because it's life to those who are being saved. Paul ends the section in verse 19 with a so then. So he has this call to remember. He's saying, but now something has happened, something has changed. And then he concludes with so then. What are all of the results of this change? Of the gospel, of Christ's work, of his cross, of his blood, of his body, of his flesh. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure is being joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together in a dwelling place for God. Remember that inscription again, that's, that was uh, posted at intervals uh, on the, the, the balustrade that separated the court of the Gentiles from the rest of the temple. No stranger is to enter within the balustrade round the temple in the enclosure. Whoever is caught, will he himself be responsible for his ensuing death? And, at the, and the, on the, from the other ear, I hear John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him would receive eternal life. What a contrast. Whoever comes into the temple will be killed. Whoever comes to Christ will live. We have a radical inclusion in Christ. And I think that the, one, of the, one of the common complaints uh, or arguments against Christianity that we hear frequently is how exclusive Christianity is. That, you know, how can you say that your God is the one true God? How can you say that your way is the one true way? How is it that these other people who earnestly and honestly believe in their religions are going to be excluded from the kingdom simply because they didn't know about or didn't like your Jesus? And if we're talking about ice cream, I think that you can make that kind of, that kind of comparison, right? That if I say that cookies and cream is the best ice cream, which it is, um, <laughs> 
how arrogant of me to assume that that's just true for everyone. But if I say that ice cream is, like I was going to say frozen milk, but I guess there's all kinds of milk alternatives these days. We say that, we say that cookies and cream is ice cream. Am I being exclusive in saying, well, a, a cheeseburger is not ice cream, right? That a steak is not ice cream. No one's going to take account with that because it's true. And so the same thing stands with Christ. Christ is the way of salvation. It's not a matter of preference. It's just the fact that it's true. This is the way that God has opened for, for sinners to be saved. And it's not just the Jews, right? The dividing wall of hostility has been laid open and everyone has access, right? Whoever, whosoever would come to him would live. God so loved the world that whoever uh, would come to him, he would grant eternal life. It's not exclusive in that sense. There is no one who is excluded from the offer of Christ's salvation. There is now radical inclusion, whereas before we were called to remember our separation from God, now we ought to remember that in Christ we are included. That before we were separated from Christ, but in Christ we are no longer strangers and aliens. That before we were alienated from Israel, but now, in verse 19, we are fellow citizens. That before we were strangers to the covenants and promises, but now in verse 15, the ordinances have been abolished. That before we were helpless, but now we are recipients of preached peace, verse 17. And before we were without God, but now we are members of the household of God, verse 19. In the, under the old covenant, once per year, the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies, the innermost part of the temple. And Paul says here, now, not only, not only do you have access, you are the temple, that God has come to you. God is coming into his people. Used to be that only one person got to go annually, now God is coming to, to us. You couldn't enter the temple, and now he's saying, you are the temple. In Revelation 21, at the, at the end of the age, we're going to uh, see this in technicolor. Says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is the vision of John in Revelation. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. There are three pictures that Paul alludes to here in his closing that point to the new unity and the new creation that God has wrought in Christ among his people. We're no longer strangers. We're no longer aliens. As we are fellow citizens with the saints, we are kingdom citizens. There's a, there's a, a, we are citizens of a kingdom he also points out that we are members of a family. Verse 19, you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And finally, in 21 and 22, he describes us as, as part of a growing temple. Jesus is the cornerstone. The prophets and the apostles are the foundation. 
And it says the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So where there is disunity before, Paul gives these three pictures of unity, of what, what it is like being in Christ. We are citizens of a kingdom. We are members of a family. We are part of a growing temple. The church ought to look like a grand example, example of all that Christ has accomplished to bring people into unity. People who hated one another, right? Uh, people who were distant from one another. People who would come up with any reason to hate and despise their coworker, their friend, their neighbor. Now in Christ are one. We are one in spirit. We are fellow citizens. We are members together. It says we are joined together. We are built together. And Christ would have his body, his bride, the church, be a model of this kind of peace and unity. The church is to exemplify all that Jesus has accomplished because, again, as we see Christ, we know who he is, and as we know who he is, we worship him as we ought to worship him. So in the church, whether it's homeschool or private school or public school or rich or poor or married or unmarried or old, or young, or athletes, and musicians, and nerds, and foodies, that all of these various people in Christ come together, and we can wrap arms around each other as brothers and sisters because of what Christ has done. And I hope that the church looks like that increasingly, more and more. There, there are rooms, there's room for preferences, and per, for preferential distinctions, but there's no room for walls of hostility. We are a family in Christ, and so I hope that as we get to know each other more, as time goes on, that more and more we exemplify the unity that Christ has wrought in demolishing the wall of hostility that was erected. Bill, you want to bring up that last picture for me? In November 9th of 1989, crowds began to dismantle the Berlin Wall. And here's a, a picture of it here. Uh, this is a, a small picture and glimpse of what Christ has done. There was, there was uh, graffiti on the wall that I think is apropos for this morning as well. One of the, the graffitis read this way. It said, forget not the tyranny of this wall, nor the love of freedom that made it fall. Forget not the tyranny of this wall, nor the love of freedom that made it fall. I want to close us with a couple uh, verses, one, one section from Hebrews and the other from Revelation. Let's stand together as I read this. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. In Revelation 7, 9 through 10, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, 
who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Father, we are so grateful to be included in your family. We're thankful, Lord, uh, in a way that we don't even fully understand, that we, uh, like living stones, are being built together as a temple. That you have called us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of your beloved Son. We are citizens. We are no longer strangers and aliens that we would otherwise be due, not only because of our deeds, but also because of our identity. Thank you for giving us a new identity. Thank you for the blood of Christ that purchases these things for us, God. And we pray that as your church, as the people of God, that we would show the world a unity that is foreign to them, but common and, uh, and a gigantic blessing to us. Thank you for your church, Lord. Thank you for uh, your amazing work on our behalf to bring us near not only to you, but also to each other. And I pray that as uh, these ideas um, root in our hearts, that it would impact the way that we live, and that we would no longer draw distinctions of animosity between brothers and sisters, but that we would enjoy the unity that comes from the spirit of peace. In Jesus' name, amen.